Hello, everybody, and welcome to this month's IMV Imaging um, podcast, uh, Focal Point. This is where we're talking about uh, an imaging-related topic. Um, as always, uh, I'm joined by the usual team, but before that, I'll introduce myself. So I'm Sam, <laughs> so I'm going to be doing the hosting duties badly um, today. Um, so I'll introduce the rest of the team. We have uh, my colleague, Laura. Hi there, everyone. Super excited about this episode. Equine, finally. My colleague Amy. <laughs> Hello, everyone. And I'm going to also happy to introduce our newest member of the team, Jake. Jake, say hello to everybody. Hello, everybody. Great. Today, we're going to be trotting out an equine topic and talking about as equine vets, do we use ultrasound to its full potential? So it's something we've looked at in a lot of other um, areas when it comes to maybe um, small animal ultrasound. We've talked about the different ways that we can use it and, and different scenarios. But it's something when we're looking at from the equine world is are we really using it as much as we should? Is there more that we can get out the systems that most of us have as well? And we're joined this month by a very special guest. So this month we have with us um, Victoria South. Say hello, Victoria. Hi, guys. Hello, everyone. So Victoria is a equine internal medicine specialist with a decade of referral um, service work at Liphook Equine Hospital. She's currently undertaking a part-time MSc at the University of Oxford in evidence-based healthcare and is also an academic and clinical lead at the University of Cambridge Department of Veterinary Medicine. Um, her particular interests are in the translation of evidence into practice, especially assisting diagnostic and therapeutic decision-making in primary care and referral settings as well. So very apt to talk about the way that we're going to be using ultrasound as a diagnostic tool and maybe those different areas that we can apply it to as well. I think the first interesting thing to talk about is um, uh, Victoria and myself are both equine vets, but I think both of our experiences of ultrasound are quite different. Um, I've certainly used it quite extensively in a musculoskeletal sense, and I'm very confident with that. But Applying it in different ways, I, I, I sort of look back on my earlier career and I, I definitely would say I didn't get the most out of it. I can think of many scenarios where I could have just got ultrasound out and it would have given me a lot more information. But um, I think, you know, not having that sort of personal toolkit at the time stopped me from doing that. Now that I've started to apply it in um, so like abdominal scanning, you know, different, uh, it's this application of the same skills in a slightly different way. I think that's what's really got me thinking of, you know, should we be using it more? I mean, I, I think we probably should. Um, and I think that's that's really, why I'm really excited that you've joined us, Victoria, because I think you have got a very different experience of ultrasound to myself. And it's something that um, I believe you, um, you sort of consider and think about quite passionately. Yeah, I, I, have, I do have an unlimited amount of enthusiasm for ultrasound, um, I'd have to say. Yeah, I think that's the key thing, isn't it, really, is that we've... Um, there is the ability to use it to help in our decision making and there are lots of times when we think oh would it be nice to have a little look at that and see something with a little bit more detail but I think where I see us being able to use ultrasound more is where it's actually going to be at a tipping point in our decision making and I think that's if we think about colic to start with there are going to be plenty of presentations where you already have pretty strong probability or certainty about what you're going to do next with that patient from your initial examination um, you would perhaps have a really strong suspicion 
for example, of a straightforward impaction, low heart rate, and you've rectaled and palpated your pelvic flexor impaction, and it's been in a stable for three days on box rest for its orthopedic disease, say, and so you've got a load of the signalment and history and all these things are mounting up to give us quite a strong probability of what's going on with that patient. And then at the other extreme, in terms of needing to make a decision to refer, and I, I never really talk about a decision to refer for surgery. It's more a case of a decision to refer a horse for hospitalization that may or may not need surgery, because that's the reality of the situation. And then the client is set up to think they, it needs to go to a hospital or somewhere for further therapy and, and um, investigation, but not just surgery. And so sometimes you're going to have a really nailed on situation, the other extreme where you arrive, the heart rate's 80, the colour's poor, you've got signs of circulatory shock at the same time as evidence of significant GI dysfunction, and it's been colicking all night, it's destroyed its bed, all those sorts of things where actually you probably don't need that many more diagnostic steps to make the decision that you need it to go. But there's an awful lot in between those where we're not 100% sure about the diagnosis or we might be thinking about which medication whether to tube the patient or not and, and those sorts of things where the use of ultrasound which gives us that real-time understanding of the of the location and the function of the gastrointestinal tract more than we can have from those, those other modalities you know the passing a tube or rectaling and our clinical examination it can help us in that middle gray area of what we might be going to do next with them and yeah I, I guess I don't want to do anything for, for the sake of doing it I, I'm always thinking about doing something because, because it's going to inform and change or give me confidence about what I'm going to be recommending doing next. Yeah there's definitely that grey zone I think all of us can think of all those horses that you know inevitably sort of sat on because you're, you're not quite sure or, you know, I think it's just getting that level of confidence, isn't it? Whereas a lot of cases, you're very confident in what should be done next. There are all those horses that you're like, you're not, you know, you, you can make a educated decision on what should be done next, but you don't always have all the information to know that that is the best, single best thing to do for that horse. Um, and, and, you know, like you, you'll often come across these situations where you can't, for example, do a parectum examination, they're too small or, um, you know, sort of like behavioural circumstances um, prohibit it. Um, and so having that extra little tool would be so useful. Um, and I, I think this is one area where I've done sort of quite a lot of reading, and there's quite a few studies that show actually the sensitivity and specificity are much higher for ultrasound than it would be for parectum examination. Not that it, it sort of precludes the, the importance of parectum examination, does it? But you just think, you know, all, the, all those cases, actually having an ultrasound examination at your fingertips, if it was easy to do so, would be very informative. Yeah, I think that's right, because it's, it's adding to the picture. It's always a, it's like a little, a little um, murder mystery almost, isn't it? You've got to build that picture up to get you more confident about what's going on. And sometimes it's very clear one way or another. And then other times you're kind of, probability of what you think is going on is is just a bit low and that's it's not that you can't make that decision without ultrasound it's just that there's a few things it could still be I'd also say adding to your list of reasons why abdominal ultrasound is helpful for colics it's not just because they're too small I actually think also because they're really big 
So when we do a rectum palpation, if, if I was, you know, sometimes I'll stand behind a horse and say, this is as much as I can feel. And there's nothing, you know, there will be justifications for why or not we should be doing our rectal examination. But there are definitely times when it's just beyond my reach, right? I can feel that there's something, but it's not very easy for me to determine what that is. And if we're able to stretch our reach of what's happening in terms of the location of the abdominal contents, then with ultrasound, then I think that that it just gives us a more complete picture, just even from something that's rather on the large side. I, I never thought about it like that. I have, I have very long arms. Yeah, and I don't. I have really short arms. Um, the other thing I think is sometimes it's just a limited palpation because it's got a big, the, the patient has a big bladder or maybe it's a mare late term pregnancy. And so even with everything else set up perfectly, practically perfectly you still are limited in what you can see and what sorry what you can feel and in order to to get a better understanding of what's happening further in then I, I think that's where mm. ultrasound can help us as well and it and it is a case of um, building up a picture and using it alongside the rest of your clinical exam it's not going to replace all of those really essential steps it's just helping to build more certainty and confidence about what's probably going on at that time um, the other thing I would say is that it's it's all it's all building a picture, but um, sometimes there can still be this sort of um, there's a variation of, of what's going on. So um, I think the um, really short, sharp, quick scanning of a few different features with a, a colic patient has been shown to be something that's reliable that we can teach relatively less experienced vets to be able to do with confidence and with with good accuracy. Um, if I think about, for example, nephrosplenic entrapments, so where you have sort of particular characteristics that you might see on ultrasound of the left, um, the left uh, sort of paralumbar fossa in, in that region, dorsally in the abdomen, um, dorsal caudally, there are still times when it might not be, um, you might get a false positive or a false negative from, from what you're scanning versus what's the reality of what's going on. But it can just help you build that picture of, oh, well, I'm not completely sure when I palpated it. And then you're adding together, can I see the left kidney or not? Is there gas there? Is there loads of colon that's sitting lateral to the spleen? It's just helping you to build a picture. Um, and so everybody likes everything to be really certain. But in reality, you're just building up a few different clues that are going to help you. Because it's not just it's the kidney is visible or not visible and therefore you have nephrosplenic entrapments or not it's actually more that you're just building up a few different features that are giving you that um, bit more assurance about what's happening yeah and i mean i think one of the great things about ultrasound in these these scenarios and in, and this is across species and across a lot of things is just that it's also kind of quite repeatable isn't it so you've got that advantage of that even where there is uncertainty I know from sort of a, a, a maybe more of a small animal perspective I'm thinking here, which is more of my background, but actually people sometimes forget that you can just do, you can do those scans again. So you can yeah. look at situations dynamically as they change. And especially when it comes to abdominal conditions, often there's actually that certainty might not can come come with time and ultrasound because it's quite safe you've always got that ability to put the sort of transducer in that area again and say well actually what's happened okay this area is more dilated or there's this other sort of change here and, it, and it's been shown in a lot of um 
yeah, the example of sort of pancreatitis and small animal patients, there's kind of advantages to doing repeated ultrasound scans in that you can sort of pick up some of the changes as they develop over time. And I would imagine as well with from the equine side where people are performing kind of colic scanning, you've got that same advantage there is that you can build that into your exam and kind of get that information again. And the same you'd want to check whether the heart rate's changing over time as well. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think that for you know some a few loops of slightly distended small intestine but they're not as much as you thought the heart rate's not too high and again you can monitor that over time for sure and that's the other advantage isn't it it's relatively non-invasive um you know it, it's an easy hurdle i think to, to for clients you know even actually i think compared to stomach tubing or rectaling where you've got additional medications and things actually to add in just that little bit extra to be able to to have a look with a scanner um you know it's a non-invasive Thing, relatively speaking to be able to do so it's a nice thing to have another look at um, and actually in terms of the practicalities in the inguinal area you know you've usually got quite a thin body wall a little bit of, of intra-abdominal fat but you've even with a linear probe you're going to have a little bit of visualization of the bowel in that area um, and I still think there's probably this idea with horses that we need to be shaving off half the horse's ventral abdomen of, of fur before we can get nice quality images but the reality is especially in those inguinal areas you, you could have a except for in the depths of winter um a bit of a good look just by using some isopropyl alcohol uh, rather than having to clip and put and clean and then put gel in i do realize that in the middle of winter with you know really thick native or cold-blooded type that you will need to clip a couple of little patches probably to get a look in and see um with you know a reasonable view of what's going on um, but it, it's easy enough the rest of the year to be able to just do little patches of your isopropyl alcohol and have a look in those different regions and see it's not it's 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 actually quite a straightforward thing and practically quite an easy thing to be able to do and start to get some images something that I've also found really interesting and I don't think it really dawned on me properly until we after COVID when we started to do more face-to-face -face courses again where previously it had been virtual that there was this really interesting phenomenon developing with with horse vets where um, those who had arrived into practice maybe in the last five to ten years um, had had internships or experiences in practices where they'd been taught to do abdominal ultrasound as part of the workup or they'd seen it at university and then there was this so there was a sort of pretty pretty good confidence and just grabbing a scanner and having a little look and seeing, and you might be able to see something helpful um, with a transabdominal ultrasound. And then there was a sort of um, variable keenness through the next five to 10 years. But then at the other end of the spectrum, really interestingly and fascinatingly with some advanced um, practitioner courses I was teaching on, that there would be some vets who just had had quite a long career of not really feeling they needed to use abdominal ultrasound and that they were really good at their workups and were so good at their pattern recognition and managing the client and the case that they had sort of missed the opportunity to become confident in abdominal ultrasound and were using these sorts of courses to um, to build that confidence up again because they had felt they just felt it was a little bit of a skill that they hadn't acquired along the way and that actually it was it was increasingly obvious that other vets were using that technique and I found that really interesting because I don't think you'd find that with um, soft tissue scanning for the musculoskeletal disease in the same way and um, yeah I, I found that quite an interesting observation to see that that, that had happened and that vets were um, taking the time to learn um, 
throughout that range of experience and practice. I was actually sitting here wondering, as a totally non-equine vet, whether the pattern of how we find the small animal vets with ultrasound are, whether it's the same in equine. So whether you have um, vets graduating that would naturally perhaps reach for ultrasound but not quite know what normal small intestine looked like or recognize necessarily the pattern of colon or recognize where the spleen would be and you know we teach that sort of thing on our courses or whether it's actually been taught as part of a colic workup because um, I graduated in 2012 and um, Laura and I went to the same vet school we might have had different equine rotation experiences but I don't I don't remember seeing any ultrasound being used for the colics Laura no no not at all um I don't... and uh, yeah the other thing was um when we when we get older vets in for courses um they are quite willing to to sort of be like, yeah, I don't I don't use ultrasound because they've had to learn how to do everything without ultrasound. So yeah. exactly the same. They've sort of missed the boat mm. to learn it and are seeing the younger vets come through, being able to do a bit more and think, oh, have I missed something? Or maybe they feel a little bit inadequate or something. But um, yeah, are you finding that the grads nowadays have got ultrasound within their equine repertoire for abdo? Or not really yet? I, I think they probably have a little bit more confidence to try with it alongside other things just to build up that picture because they, they're probably the pattern recognition and the rest of those things that come with experience and case management, they, they probably want to use different things for it to build up that picture. So I can see that that would be the case. Um, we would see lots of different vet students from when we were, when I was at Lippock, we saw students from all, all international vet schools and all of the schools within the UK and um, there would be a little bit of variation in what they'd had an opportunity to see but we would always make sure they, they got the chance to have a look when they were on their work experience placements to see and from the next stage over when you've graduated you know running um, running courses for young vets in practice it, you, you wouldn't run a course on internal medicine without having an abdominal ultrasound element to it and um for, for its different applications, but focusing to some extent on what you might see with a with a colic patient. Um, so, yeah, I think it probably we. I think the other thing there's no point in talking about these things if we don't have the opportunity for people to use nice quality machines in practice. And I think one of the other key things is that the evil abdominal ultrasound in horses it, it doesn't lend itself that easily to 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 um, ultrasound in comparison say to an eye which we might come on and talk about later um so we have needed to wait until we had affordable nice quality machines that enabled that to be the case and i think we've got there now and i think a lot of vets in practice will have the opportunity to use um to have a curved probe and to be able to um to acquire reasonable images that they gives mm. them a half decent chance of being able to interpret what's going on um so yeah, I, th I think from that point of view, it the reason it has also evolved is that through you know through through the the evolution of quality equipment, it's enabled those better quality images to be developed to be um to be obtained that can then be interpreted. I, I definitely think that's a part of it, and that has occurred relatively recently. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree. It kind of all comes down to like a kind of confidence thing, doesn't it? Is that as the image quality is improved, people start to have more confidence in the technology and in themselves as they use it. And one of the beautiful things about sort of ultrasound is that you can then, once you start to understand it and you have confidence in the way that you use it, you almost kind of you almost can't run out of different areas to go and apply it to because the moment you start thinking you're thinking well i know how this works you can think well actually why don't i scan this fracture or why don't i scan these these eyes and things and because it, it's generally very safe with, with small exceptions there's um there's there's you've got that ability to kind of spread out and look at different things i think i think another thing to consider is that for ambulatory vets out on the road you, you'll often find yourself at for example if we're talking about a colic situation you will arrive at the yard you don't necessarily have that kit in your car you might find yourself you're an hour away from the practice you can't just nip back and get it or there might be one machine that's out with someone else um, so you don't always have the easy access to this equipment. Um, and even then, if you do have access to the equipment, you can't always use it in the field. If you have a yard without power or the, the horse um, uh, in, in question is in the middle of a field and for whatever reason can't be moved or there's inclement weather and no shelter. So you can't you could start plugging things in um, lest you risk, risk everyone's <laughs> lives, um, which is. Well, unless, yes, the port, the portability of devices, I think, um, offers huge potential because they're very cost effective. It's, you know, in comparison to, to other machines, you know, they're quite cheap. So it becomes more feasible to have it in the car and to whip it out at a moment's notice and, and use it. And I kind of feel like that would encourage the use of um, equipment because it's as easy as turning it on and um, loading up the app and you go. Um, and I think that. Yeah, I agree with. Yeah, I do think that that's and that's really recent, isn't it? You know, wireless devices, wireless probes, particularly probes that have a you know a curvy linear transducer at one end in order that you can see a little bit more. I find those pieces of equipment also really useful in another practical scenario, which is isolation or with where you're worried about biosecurity because the ease of you've got a colitis case you've told the client to keep it on its own it's not looking as good as it was and you could run some bloods to see what this albumin's doing but do you the idea of getting out your your um trolley and your ultrasound machine and every and all the wires and the extension lead and then having to disinfect all of that at the other end you know it's, it's hard work but with portable wireless equipment you've just got that ability to just you know i'd stick the device in a plastic bag and my phone in a bag if that's what I'm using where the app is and then have a quick scan see what the colon how thick the colon is is there an effusion you know you can really quickly get some information without having to it it, it really makes a difference between the energy and the willingness to do something versus not isn't it so you you know that you could do it but the opportunity is there but it, it's a bit of a mission to get on with it so I think those wireless pieces of kit do make a difference to, to being able to do that I also think not having that wire if you have got a slightly uncomfortable horse you've got a horse owner holding the horse again you know you want you don't want a whole load of gear in there with you necessarily and so again these sorts of um, you know being slightly less expensive is is really helpful in lots of different ways it also makes you just feel comfortable to get it out you you it's always going to be safe it's in your hands if you you do have a situation where you want to be using it with a the horse that's um 
you think you've got well controlled, but there are some unpredictable parts to it, especially with colic. So yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think the the way that just the kit that we have has made a difference to us being confident using it or thinking about using it. Yeah, I, I was just going to add there as well. I think the other nice bit with ultrasound and the fact that it is safe is if it's a, a new thing that you're adding to your repertoire or skill set is that it is something that we can all practice on healthy patients without you know introducing risk of creating problems where there isn't one um and i think certainly you know as a, a new graduate vet that's that's a really useful thing but probably given what everyone's just talked through here actually for for, for the profession as a whole having something where you know as a practice or as individuals from even different practices coming together um in training days etc that that has its use but then being able to take it away from that and practice you know in your own time or or on alternative days um yeah it's definitely definitely allows you to get used to the normal to then start using it on these cases that aren't so normal um and actually get used from it I, it was was another thing that sort of um comes to my mind with it and actually that whole idea of, of sliding back to what is or isn't normal is really helpful from the point of view of referral hospitals post-operatively. So as well as what we might think of as you know, working things up from the beginning and getting to our diagnosis of what's going on in terms of a colic patient, the other way after surgery, we would use um, quick checks of the, um, the appearance of the stomach and the small intestine what the colon's doing after surgery is there an abdominal effusion is there a hemoabdomen you know it really adds to our picture and our monitoring of these patients in ICU as well and again e easy to use equipment that's wireless actually really helps with that too um, so and actually that is sometimes you're scanning and seeing very little that's abnormal but it's still really helpful really reassuring for a client really useful information for that caregiver to know the horse is doing well after surgery and you know we would it would it would be unusual for us for us to have looked at a um, post-operative patient that's uncomfortable in some way or a bit dull or quiet and not used ultrasound to help us look at the function of the GI tract in that recovery period as well um, because it is it is meaningful information that's going to have some impact whichever whatever you find there um just as a really quick thing it's interesting to think about peritoneal taps i think that's another example where you're not going to do an abdominocentesis in every weight loss case in every recurrent colic in every more acute colic that's going to present it's it's not always going to be helpful or indicated it's not going to change what you do necessarily in some of these cases but where it is done i think this is another scenario where the use of ultrasound just makes it a bit safer because it reduces your risk of an enterocentesis if you know what is lying ahead of the teat cannula or the needle that you're going to place and um, I think it also gives you a chance of choosing your location more accurately so that you if you've chosen to make the decision to an abdominocentesis the likelihood of you getting a positive yield of some fluid back again is greater if you can use ultrasound and where there were fewer fewer suitable uh, ultrasound machines available, then that would have just not been something that people would have done. But I think it's another example where it I, I think I would be not really that keen to do an abdominocentesis if I didn't have a, 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 the opportunity to look, scan the ventral abdomen along the linear and be able to see 
whether I could or couldn't take a sample. And, you know, you can then, the conversation back to the client is, I actually really can't see a suitable site to take a sample from. So it's not, it's not going to be a goer for us today. We're not going to do it. And that you can use the ultrasound to, to just explain and, you know, that communication back to the client that, you know, I'm not just going to do this blindly. I, I, I'm going to use this to help decide where to go or if indeed it's going to be a suitable thing for me to do or not. Um, and I, th I think that has changed with, we could use a linear probe to do that again, you know, in the, right on the midline, you don't always need to have a curved probe with you to be able to see that. Um, but I think it, that is something when I was reflecting upon what's changed over time, where I think you, you, most people, I think probably would use ultrasound to her. And if they're not, I would encourage them too. And then you'll have fewer times when you haven't got a yield. Mm. Um, and hopefully fewer enterocentesis as well. I think people are generally talking more about um, ultrasound-guided um, injection or aspiration in, in all its form, just placement of needles blindly when one could use an ultrasound, um, uh, an ultrasound machine just to see exactly where that, that needle is and is not going. Um, I think it's becoming it's it's mm. becoming more of a done thing. It is people are talking about it more, but um, I, I think there's there's still instances perhaps where it could be used more for that sort of added level of confidence and, and safety. Yeah, and I, I think we've probably moved to a point now where people, for example, with a liver biopsy, that I, I think it's very unlikely for anybody to do that now without using ultrasound to guide where you're going to go, um, and um, giving you that confidence of where the right low. Lo where the right area is to be able to collecting that to collect that biopsy. Um, yeah, there are many other examples as well. But yeah, I think ultrasound is um, really essential in giving you that security that you are going to have a good likelihood of getting a sample and not damaging something yep. else. <laughs> um, we actually also thinking about other ways that we've moved on with ultrasound and the fact that it's portable and easy to use would be jugulars. So we, you know, we. I think if I translate across from small animal where you're using pretty peripheral vasculature to place your catheters, whereas, you know, effectively we're using a central line, aren't we, when we place a catheter in a horse and um, we use obviously scrupulous sterile technique to place it. But um, I think whether it, whether it's in an ICU or whether it's after you've had a catheter in a horse um, that's back out on the road after it's been in, in a hospital or had a procedure done where it's had a catheter in and it's got a swelling, being able to use ultrasound to look at the thick, the subcutaneous tissue, look at the dimensions of the the wall of the jugular, and look for any clots that are present is um, again it's another area where you see so much with the ultrasound imaging that you are otherwise completely blind to. There's no other way of of acquiring that information, and physical palpation of the of the area is just so inferior to being able to ultrasound. Um, we actually did used to use it um, for assessing the catheter while it's still in situ as well. So being able to be careful with the technique and the way in which you do it to make sure that you're not going to be um, pushing bacteria around the insertion site. So there are little ways that we can make sure that that's reduced, but using the uh, a linear probe to um, have a look through down the jugular vein and, and look for any abnormalities that might mean that you're going to remove the catheter prematurely to what you intended to because you found something there and again it goes back to that thing doesn't it it's actually a tipping point in your decision making if you see something there if you see a phlebitis if you see um, a sort of tract with some fluid running from the surface of the skin down over the vein and then you can see a thickened uh, wall of the jugular you're it's 
they're just not going to keep that catheter in any longer. So it's going to ultimately then improve patient care and outcomes if you're removing that catheter before it's caused a significant thrombophlebitis or even a septic condition developing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, again, that's probably more hospital than than necessarily in, in primary care. But there are examples where that I think again, it's so it lends itself so well. It's superficial. And, you know, let's imagine if you've got a catheter and they probably has been clipped first. Um, I might be I might be heading us down a little bit of a dead end here, but have you ever used yourself or even even know of its use in um, a sort of ultrasound assisted um, uh, sort of vascular access? I know it's used in human medicine, smile medicine as well. Um, and yes, I think the majority of cases that jugular vein is hard to miss. Um, but I, I, I do think that, that I can think of a few instances where I think, you know, actually it, it could have been quite useful. One is um, um, uh, I was working with someone and they sort of placed, placed the, uh, the, the catheter in the jugular vein. Um, um, this was for euthanasia. So it was quite a sort of, you know, you want to make sure you are in when you're about to inject that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, whilst everything was flushing through fine and we could palpate that it probably was in the vein, but they weren't getting any blood back. And I think, you know, some a lot of people rely on having that sort of withdrawal of, of blood in, in, you know, even if it comes quite easily, not too easily, to, to have that confidence because that was missing. And I suspect it was because you have perhaps had a bit of a valve that sort of was just, so every time she withdrew, it would just, you know, sort of cap off the end, end of the needle and nothing would come back. Um, and another case, there was um, a rather obese Shetland and we and we could not, for the life of us, get a catheter in, which is kind of unbelievable. Because I think collectively, right? <laughs> I mean, I I thought you know I, I was I was fine with that, but we genuinely couldn't get a catheter in this horse. And some very experienced people tried. Um, it was it was bizarre. Maybe there was some sort of anatomic anomaly there. Um, I I, I think again, coming I'm coming from musculoskeletal background. At that time, we didn't think we should scan it. Um, it just you know was we weren't yeah. in that mindset. But what, what's your experience there? So I, I I definitely think we would use it if you if you're thinking you might put a catheter in something and then you go to raise the vein and let it fall and it just looks a bit odd or it might for example have had a few treatments IV off the needle so it could have had a bit of trauma and it's a bit swollen it's a bit difficult to see in that area if you drop the scanner on it's already a bit thickened you don't want to put your catheter in that site so it might actually mean that you chose somewhere else if it looked a bit a a, a bit um, damaged already yeah and I think there would be occasions you're exactly right if you've got you know an absolute drain pipe and a really nice slim patient with thin skin you know nice warm blood or cold uh, or hot-blooded horse then it's going to be easy for you to see Um, and if it's easy for you to see it rise and fall then you're probably going to be okay popping the catheter in but there are lots of examples where you've got a wide very much equilateral triangular shaped neck like a a Shetland um, with thick skin with a lot of jowl and and and, uh, subcutaneous fat there that it does make it difficult to do it and to be able to use ultrasound to see might just give you a little bit of confidence that it is there and, and help you with that the time that we did use it would be for lateral thoracic catheters so if you had a problem with a left jugular which would be usually where most people would would think of first um, catheterizing a horse's vein in an adult horse. If you have a problem with that vein, the last thing you want to do is to go to the right jugular vein because you're going to cause a problem with venous return from the entire head. And from my own personal experience of a horse, when I was 
uh, a young um, pet student, my own horse, ended up with a big problem with, with that for a different reason down the line. So I know what those look like and they're not great. So um, the last place you want to go is on the other side of the neck. So the next step in an adult horse is probably a lateral thoracic. And again, sometimes they're sticking out and waving at you and looking really fabulous. And in other times, they're going to be a reasonable sized vessel, but just because of the shape of the horse's chest and the amount of coverage of um, condition, shall we say, in those areas, it might just be difficult and slightly less familiar to you to, to, to palpate and see um, in that area. So using ultrasound could help you to locate the lateral thoracic. Um, in a foal, we would, I would start with a cephalic catheter. I think they're brilliant. You can tip little neonates on their side and, and pass catheters there really easily. But again, you might start to look at less familiar sites to be then choosing a different site to pass to place your catheter after that point. And so, I, yeah, I can see that being able to locate the vessel and be confident about it being the right choice next would be would be a really useful way of employing ultrasound for sure. I think it's a good thing to mention is that because a lot of people, I think when it comes to doing ultrasound guided sampling or kind of passing kind of um, needles and things, it is really something to practice. So if anybody's out there kind of wondering about it, the, the best thing to do is, is probably think about making a, a phantom of some kind that you can practice on just to get used to how things like the needles are going to look and how that kind of you're going to use your hands when you've got a needle and a transducer at the same time as well. So it's well worth something having a kind of practice at. But when you build those skills again, like a, like a lot of ultrasonography, they're very transferable to a lot of scenarios as well. Mm, definitely. What we haven't talked about yet, um, a completely different um, topic would be the use of ultrasound for eyes. And um, I'm absolutely obsessed with the use of ultrasound in eyes. Um, we would have seen an awful lot of cases through the hospital. Um, but I think also just in that first presentation of a swollen head stroke eyelid or that initial presentation of a, a corneal edema completely blocking your ability to visualize anything but the surface of the cornea in a horse um i think just the the nature of horses and the position of their eyeballs and eyelids means that we do see an awful lot of, of trauma in those areas and um i think ultrasound just it's just one of the most perfect modalities to assess what's happening in those scenarios and depending there's a couple of studies looking at um how frequent ocular emergencies are um but in one of the studies in the States, it was up around 25 to 35% of emergencies, particularly in the summer, were eye-related. And obviously, some of those will be um, things that are e easy to work up without ultrasound. But there's a number of those where I think being able to put, again, a linear probe, um, most people are going to have those. Even, a, even your rectal probe is going to be really suitable. It's right on the edge of the horse. It's got really good distinction between the different densities of structures in the eye it, the, it's at its maximum it's only four ish centimeters in diameter it's just such a it's just crying out to be ultrasounded <laughs> question from a non-equine vet can you scan horse eyes transpalpebrally or do you need to have the eyelid up it's quite yeah do you know, muscles. We, we all i have always been amazed anybody would want to try and do it straight onto the cornea rather than transpalpebrally. That's how we would do it. Ah, that's what we do in the dogs. 
yeah, it creates a little bit of a standoff almost to enable you to, to look at the um, different structures within the eye. And you can see to the some of the retrobulbar areas as well. Um, but we would, yeah, I mean, practically, I would use I would use a couple of things. The first thing I would say is do yourself a favor and build some sort of castle or use a stand if you could possibly get one to stick the horse's chin on, because the whole thing is easier if you're resting your hand on on the head and the head isn't swinging away from you. And they are better if they're sedated for this. So um, if you're if you're kind of bent down on your knees and the horse's head is on the floor and then it's moving away from you as you rest rest your hand on the forehead to keep your, your transducer still. It's just much easier if you can find some way of just securing the head with a couple of bales of shavings perhaps or a headstand if you've got a dental stand in the car or whatever, which a lot of vets would do. Um, and then I would use gel and probably... I mean, to be honest, I tended to use either KY gel because I knew then it was really um, clean or gel that I knew was in a clean bottle <laughs> to go over the surface onto the, um, onto the eyelid, upper lid. But I, would, um, I didn't, wouldn't clip them, just put the gel on. And I would generally put an auriculopalpebral block, motor block in just to, um, just to make it easier. So there's just less movement for you. So you don't have, you know, it's that whole idea of, you don't want to have to be worrying about other things, especially when it's new. You want to be able to just concentrate on how you're holding the transducer and the images that you're acquiring. So those little tips would help you get there. But do, do people in small animal go through the with you without go through without using without the eyelid straight onto the cornea? Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's the there is a, a slight degradation in image quality using the kind of going transpalpebrally because you inevitably tend to have some hair there that traps air and then a little bit of thicker tissue so the norm in small animals is to go to direct corneal replacement there's advantages obviously small animals you don't need to do an auriculopalpebral nerve block um, so you can avoid that but they use tend to use sort of single use sort of sterile gel sachets and then 0.5% um, um, proximeticane to actually yeah. numb the eye surface yeah. so the eye is numbed and then they go on directly that's to get the best image quality I do also know um, that some ophthalmologists because they do it that way will do it the same way in horses and go by direct corneal placement as well so i find it quite interesting that the technique of doing transpalpebral ocular ultrasonography tends to predominate in equine whereas it's not really used um, very much at all in small animal and um, so it's in in, in, in in it's just an interesting one of these sort of things that people seem to approach very differently as well um but uh, yeah on, on small animals it's generally sort of direct corneal sort of placement yeah i think i have done in occasions where i really wanted to focus on what's happening in the cornea or the anterior chamber that you you would perhaps you know want that real clarity and definition of what you're looking at um but yeah otherwise i i guess it's still quite a it is still and you've got a it feels like a very comfortable thing to be able to to place it that way and we don't really see a lot of issues with the air and the hair short hair coat i mean i'm it's probably i could imagine it might be different in others but um i'll have to we'll have to do some um We'll have to do some I can see a project evolving <laughs> <laughs> to have anonymized to have anonymized um sampling and see whether your appearance of your lens for example could be different between the two um 
it would be really interesting to see whether or not people were happier with the images if it was straight through the cornea. Yeah, no, it, it would be very interesting to see the the, the difference, and and I mean the, the direct placement isn't without it, its sort of challenges in that you have to be very careful with the types of preservatives that are in the ultrasound gel because then you can actually cause corneal ulceration if they have certain preservatives and things so mm. there is there there's going to be pros and cons and obviously the, the anatomy is slightly different um none of this to take the way because i i too also think ocular ultrasounds are brilliant i think the kind of pictures of it are amazing and the detail that you can see is amazing so i think it's definitely something that if anybody's not tried and they've got these kind of, uh, kind of cases that are appropriate to do it on it, it, it will it, it can be quite astounding how much you can see of the kind of of the kind of the sort of um they, they can lens the sort of vitreous chamber, the kind of the, the even some cases the kind of retinal layers and then and then retrobulbar areas as well. There's so much information you can get from it. And I think it is something that people generally underutilize quite a lot. Yeah, and I think some of that might come from a couple of things like lack of familiarity with what it is that you would expect to see. Um, one of the really cool things, though, is there is another eye on the other side, and it's it's obviously possible that um, with these diseases that there could be something abnormal on in both eyes to a greater or lesser extent. But um, I would, I, I can't think of a time where I'd only scan one eye anyway. I'd always be just putting the block, hardly any money at all, really, to put the bl blocks in both sides and the gel on both eyelids to be able to do it, and. Um, just like when we would do the rest of our clinical ex clinical exam of you know, focused in on the eye, I would look at both eyes. I'm going to scan both eyes as well. And, and that is a nice thing for giving you, is this a normal thing or not normal if you've got another one that should be the same <laughs> on the other side? Um, and yeah, so I think from that point of view, it, it the other thing I think is if you haven't had much experience of it, the idea of Am I going to see something helpful? Am I am am I actually going to be able to end up with a decent image that I can save and send to somebody else or show to a colleague? And I guess one of the key things for eyes is that you can be pretty sure within a few minutes that you'll have you'll have a decent picture. You don't have to fiddle about with the settings for ages. You know, as long as your focus is up there within the globe area, you're going to have some nice pictures to to take away and have another look at another time or show to others. And it's 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 not something that is going to be a challenge in terms of the obliquity or anything else of what you're looking at. So, um, you know, I think from that point of view, there's very little to lose in, in having a look. I think it's one of those things that once you've had a go, you realise you can do it. It's, it's relatively simple and you're then more likely to do it again next time. Yes. And I think for, for me, one of the areas that has been really helpful is in uveitis cases where you can see from the initial appearance that they have an acute uveitic episode so they've got blepharospasm epiphora maybe they've got a meiotic pupil um, and you feel pretty comfortable that that's what's going on at that snapshot in time and if we use ultrasound it gives us a chance to look at what's happening in the posterior chamber as well and it might actually be fairly often i think it is the case that there it isn't an individual one-off trauma but actually it's a new flare-up of a more insidious level of uveitis that actually could be present in the other eye as well to a greater or lesser extent so being able to just pop the scanner on if you've got a bit of aqueous flare if you've um, 
got a bit of edema, it can sometimes be hazy and just really difficult to get clarity of the retina. And you don't know whether that's simply because of the flare in the anterior chamber or if that's because between your, your you and the retina, there is also some abnormalities within the posterior chamber. So um, ultrasound enables you to have a look at the back of the eye as well, um, not just the retina, but but through in through behind the lens. And again, if it's relatively young and you've got evidence of a significant amount of, of change within the lenses, then again, that just tells you that there's a bit more going on with this horse's eyes than just the acute idiotic bout that's occurred. Um, and it's just information that would be extremely difficult to obtain it in another way it, from, from a from, it, from the rest of your exam um, that I find really, re really helpful in terms of building a picture of what's happening. I guess the other thing as well is it's one of those opportunities where we can gain a lot of information um, that, that can then be used to speak with colleagues or speak with a specialist and actually come with images, whether that's photographs of the eye, but then also um, ultrasound images too. So it probably is one of those areas where it brings you sort of more that you can do on the road. Uh, I would guess having not done sort of any equine um, practice than, than in other cases where if you're not sure and you're, you're kind of wanting advice from someone, you know, at a referral site, actually you can go with a lot of data for them before you start, I suppose. Yeah, I think that's that's right. And it also is helpful for a horse in terms of monitoring over time. I think if we think about um, a cataract in in a horse and we've established that there is something present, you can follow that over time in a way that's really otherwise quite a subjective assessment of what's happening. You've got the ability to look at the, the pattern of the echogenicity in the lens and in the eye to help you be able to track that over time with a bit of objectivity that otherwise is quite a subjective assessment. And I can see that being useful over time, especially in older patients. What we don't know is what the functional significance is of those, what we're, we're seeing. And I think that's where the whole picture is important. But having a little bit of objective assessment of what we can see, I think is really helpful. You know, we would do that with an echo of a horse's heart, wouldn't we? We would be completely comfortable with the idea of taking measurements and looking at the function of the um, heart and then saying well you know one of the great things is we can now have personalized measurements to be able to follow this horse through over time and in some ways being able to track what's happening with cataracts is also really useful it may look really similar same settings on your machine does it look the same in six months or 12 months time or or is it really clear that, that there are differences there um, I, I think you know, I think that's really useful and you just can't acquire that that any other way I think the other time it, I was thinking um, actually came back to a context of, again, one of my mum has um, horses. I don't have any that wouldn't have the time or the, the opportunity to be able to do anything with them, even if I did. Um, but my mum does. And I always think back to what would my mum think or as a horse owner, you know, what would her perspective be? And um, she had a horse that was new in a field with another horse. And one morning it just she went down to see them and it had an absolutely hugely swollen eye and you know the whole the whole of the eyelid and, and around it and you know that could be so many different things either she's just had a head you know swung away from being chased by this other new horse and has just literally got a blunt trauma just to the superficial structures right the way through to practically a ruptured globe or a 
a huge a huge eyeball full of blood or you know a major trauma and because totally substantial potentially catastrophic contents but the darn thing is so swollen you literally couldn't you can't do anything except give it some steroids and analgesics and see how it looks you know at some point down the line refer it etc so there's such a range of what might be on the inside and all you've got is that swelling and with the use of ultrasound you can really separate out those things of it's literally half the size of the globe that it should be and everything's really distorted it's probably ruptured or is it completely full of blood or is it actually really a very limited effect of that trauma just to the superficial swelling and and it'll it'll settle down really quickly within a few days and it's just a you know without the ultrasound you'd really be stuck until things had settled down and you could have a better look from the surface and um you know those are not that's not an uncommon presentation to see in practice i think amazing um thank you victoria it's um i think it's given us a lot to think about um, oh, it's all been absolutely fascinating i'm not equine at all so i was like oh i wonder but it's if i feel like once again equine medicine just feels more accessible as long as i turn up with my ultrasound probe and not with my lack of knowledge i think i'll be all right <laughs> <laughs> yeah i like that <laughs> find, find a horse with an injured eye to go have a go scanning it um it's very inspiring hearing you talk about um, how you've used ultrasound and how it can give us a lot more information. Well, thank you very much for um, inviting me to participate in the podcast. It's been really fun. Oh, it's been it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, and and I think that sort of um, brings up quite nicely the fact that you know if if anyone does want to have a go, um, I, I think sometimes the best thing to do is to have a bit of instruction to help you get that confidence to know that you can do it. Um, and certainly that's something that um, you and I, Victoria, have been talking about mm-hmm. recently is collaborating on some sort of course to sort of, you know, expose equine vets and give them that skill set so they can take it back to practice. And I guess try and get finally the most out of uh, ultrasound equipment, something that I need to improve on myself, I think. Um, but um, I think that's a really exciting thing um, in the future. So if that is something um, people are interested in, then do keep a close eye on our social media. Uh, we'll always um, sort of put updates of anything exciting and new there. Also check out our website, so it's um, imv-imaging.com to um, see that hopefully at some point next year we'll have some exciting new equine courses with hopefully Victoria South. <laughs> Great. Thank you, Laura. That sounds really exciting. Well, I think it's a great time to say goodbye. Um, Thank you, everybody, for listening. This has been um, Focal Point, the IMV Imaging podcast as well. As Laura mentioned, on the website, we've got lots of other um, resources, so please check them out. You can also reach us um, through our social media pages on Facebook if you search for IMV Imaging and things. Um, And if you want to listen to to more of the podcast, please um, check the website or check your usual sort of podcast platforms as well so i'll say goodbye for myself my name's sam and then i will let the team say goodbye individually thanks to everyone and especially thank you to you victoria and goodbye from me thank you victoria for all the education i loved it yeah thank you very much victoria it's been very interesting and thank you very much to you all for having me and for a really enjoyable discussion thanks very much thanks victoria bye-bye